Welcome to Watershed March podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove. I'm the head of programme at Watershed. And this podcast affords us more insight into the forthcoming programme of screenings and events that are happening at Watershed. This month, March 07, marks the 200th anniversary of the Slade Trade Abolition Act. The driving force in this act was William Wilberforce, MP for Hull. His campaigning for reform through Parliament is portrayed in the new film Amazing Grace, opening to mark the occasion. I have to say I approached this film with a bit of caution when I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival last year. It seems to me it would be folly to see the abolition of the slave trade as purely the results of one man. We've been having some intense debates here in Bristol, sparked by the imminent centenary and how to mark the occasion. Bristol's involvement in and money made from the slave trade was fulsome, to say the least. This bloody and morally bankrupt trade is intertwined with the very fabric of Bristol's history. First of all, the film is directed by Michael Apted, and he is not naive when it comes to social issues, having directed the famous groundbreaking 7-Up series of documentaries following the lives of people from the 1960s, and films such as Instant Oglala and Thunderheart. The resulting film for me is much more than the great, open brackets, white, close brackets, man theory of history, but rather an astute insight into the workings of our great democratic parliament. Amazing Grace shows Wilberforce and other abolitionists trying to get the ethical and moral position of banning the slave trade through the House of Commons. And how did they do that? Through closing tax loopholes and it took them 18 years to get the royal seal. The film made me think about contemporary politics, what the driving forces are behind politics, the role of big business. The arguments at the time was that the economy would be ruined if the slave trade were abolished, and how capitalism and morality do not sit easily together in politics. I came away thinking also, will it take a tax law for business and politics to address climate change? In Amazing Grace, Michael Apted has paid due to the abolitionists and Wilberforce, but also raised pertinent questions about contemporary politics. No mean feat. The film also has the pleasure of a terrific performance from Michael Gambon. Not as Wilberforce, mind you. As part of the ongoing discussion here at Watershed, we are holding a talk on Saturday 24th of March on slavery and the cinematic imagination with writer and curator Karen Alexander. Karen will be looking at films such as D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, Gone with the Wind, through to Lars von Trier's Manderley. Amazing Grace opens on Friday 23rd of March until Thursday the 15th of April. Now, once upon a time there was a boy named David. It was a hot, balmy, sunny day and he went for a walk in the park. Out of the corner of his little eye he noticed something in the grass. It was small. Was it moving? It might be. Was it a human body part? It might be. Maybe a finger or an ear. David found a stick and poked it. Ants ran off it and revealed it was indeed a bit of someone's ear. Maybe this is a dream, he thought. Maybe I've been watching too many Boonwell films, he thought. Maybe I should make my own films, he thought. This may or may not be an episode from David Lynch's childhood. Lynch himself describes his route into filmmaking thus. I was working on a painting of a garden at night at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. The plants in the dark night painting began to move and I heard the wind. I thought, oh, this is interesting, a moving painting. That was the thought that started it. 
His new film, Inland Empire, pushes not only the surreal storytelling so typical and unique of Lynch, but also sees him using the quality of the image in a much more painterly way. I had a weird experience with one of Lynch's earlier films, Lost Highway. I saw it as the surprise film at a festival. I knew nothing about it. I was mesmerised, bewildered and terrified in equal measure. I confessed to leaving the film with a pounding headache, but it was the best headache I had ever had. Lynch films do that to you. In a recent Guardian interview at the National Film Theatre, Lynch talks about the influence of painters Edward Hopper and Francis Bacon, and it makes sense. You can indeed see and feel the lyrical melancholy of Hopper and the violent, disturbing intensity of Bacon throughout Lynch's work. Just think of Jack Nancy's character in Eraserhead, or Dennis Hopper's psychotic Frank in Blue Velvet. Maybe both influences come together in The Elephant Man. His surreal, dreamy, disturbing new film Inland Empire took root in work Lynch was doing for his own website, davidlynch.com. Shooting on a relatively domestic digital camera, and putting the results on his website kept Lynch working and thinking whilst probably trying to secure funding for the next feature. The results, with the help of Laura Dern, grew from a web project into a fully-fledged, fantastic, three-hour cinematic journey into a distinctly Lynchian universe. Be warned, it may well all make sense in dreams. Inland Empire opens Friday 9th of March and plays till Thursday 22nd of March. A slight diversion from the film world, uh, but not necessarily David Lynch's world, this month brings into the realms of the online and the digital. I have with me here two multi-talented creative individuals, both using the possibilities of digital technology to create new experiences for audiences to participate in. Hazel Green of Licorice Film has spent the last year creating My Geist, an alternate reality game which launched in January and is now in its final few weeks. My Geist is supported by Arts Council, Southwest Screen, Watershed and HP Invent. Hazel, if we can start with you, if you could tell us a bit about alternative reality gaming. Um, what is it and how is it different from ordinary gaming? It's not a game in the same way as a, a video game, so that one person interacts with some kind of machine or something or some programme. It's sort of multiplayer narrative so it's more like following a narrative but the narrative is interactive people get together online to solve clues and puzzles in order to find the next bit of the story and the story can work in any medium it can be based online or it can involve real world events or mobile phones or stuff sent in the post things like that do you participate in discovering a story ours has lasted for two months well, tell, tell us about My Geist. What is that about? It's a kind of science fiction narrative, I guess, with several characters. The main character is a student called Eva McGill, and uh, she has a blog, a video blog, and the story starts where she has lost her cat and also hurts her foot, so it's kind of trapped inside and decides to have a go at video blogging and just wants to know if there's anyone out there who wants to talk to her. And the story's gone on from from there, really, and got more complex and more sort of dark. But also, there's lots of comedy in it as well. How how do you initially get your audience? Well, the audience is already there in that they're already part of the alternate reality gaming network and community. So there's main forums where people are into following these games, 
and they will check those regularly to see if there's something new happening or to follow a game that's already in progress. So by contacting those people who are already part of that network, you can set your game going. So what we did was sent out about 10 email messages to people we knew were keen on this kind of gaming saying that the thing was about to start a certain date and we set up a website where people could sign up and from those few emails the word spread could be something like 8,000 people following the story but about 300 following it every day. Where can people find out about it? One of the really useful things that's happened is that the players have set up their own sort of wiki site where you can get all the information about the story get all the links and see what's happened so far and catch up with everything that's gone on because it's very complex, lots of things have happened. There's about 10 websites, you know, loads of different puzzles and clues. But that site is worth looking at so you can see exactly what it's all about. And th the address for that is mygeist.com. So it's www.mygeist.com and mygeist is spelled M-E-I-G-E-I-S-T. Does the game have a beginning, middle and end? Because it's a narrative that is running over real time, so the narrative's running over two months, you'd have to catch up. So you'd f catch up on what has already happened with the story so far and then follow it till the end. But it does have a beginning, middle and end in that sense, in that it will end in a couple of weeks' time. I believe you brought real gamers from the alternative gaming world together in the real world. Yeah. It's part of the game. Obviously, the whole idea is about mapping some kind of fiction onto reality. So the websites look real, lots of things look real. Having something happening in the real world is, again, about playing with that fiction and reality, the crossover between the two. We had a live event here at Watershed uh, last Sunday, which the characters had talked about um, meeting up at a certain time in a certain place in Bristol, and by having the characters doing that, we let the players know that they could come and meet the characters as part of the story. They could come and see that event happening in the real world rather than digitally. We worked out a whole day of events, so there was drama and they could follow the characters to see them, interact with them, watch the story unfold and take part themselves. So we had about nine people came along from all different parts of the UK. They then got on online on the forum directly afterwards and said that they'd had a really great time. But you're consciously bringing together that online virtual experience with a, a real physical experience as well for people? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it's fun for them to meet some of the other people they've been chatting with online and for them to get together and get to know each other. And it's fun for them to see the actors that they've seen online playing those characters and to have that interaction so it's not just passive watching of something. You're actually becoming a character yourself in the story. The players have an essential role in it, so they become a part of the story themselves. I, I know you work as a filmmaker and you talk about characters and plot and you know beginning, middle and end, so it's almost as though you are making a film but in a much more expanded, yeah. two-dimensional, online world. Yeah, that's how it is, really. Yeah, it's a narrative which uses all different kind of media, as I say. So it has got video and film in it, but it's essentially the same intention is to 
uh, present certain points of the story and hide certain other points until um, they can be revealed and to build the drama up and to keep the interest and the intrigue for the audience um, in the same way you would with any narrative, really, the same way you would with cinema, and to try and use sound and as many, many different sort of textures as possible to build up the excitement and the drama and to fill in the background. I suppose the difference is that with, say, a, a two-hour film, you've only got that medium in order to get everything across, whereas if you're dealing with text and other things online, you can have the backstory is available as, say, secret documents on a website or someone's diary that they've scanned and put in. So, you, you know, you've got all the backstory there for people to look at at their leisure as opposed to having to sort of symbolically say it all in two hours. Luke Jerome is current recipient of the Clark Bursary at Watershed and is developing a new installation called The Dream Director. Luke, um, you're developing technology as part of this project to detect what audiences are dreaming about and to introduce sound into their dreams. Can you tell us how the project evolved? I'm in charge of an artwork called Sky Orchestra. We play music in surround sound from hot air balloons at about six in the morning. So we've um, got seven big hot air balloons and we strap speakers onto them and then we fly over a city playing this music. And the idea is that we can kind of um, not wake people up entirely, but just sort of lift them into that illogical and kind of creative space on the edge of sleep. Sky Orchestra has been performing for three or four years now in different parts of the world to see what effect we're actually having. You know, I've been working with scientists at the University of West of England, uh, sleep psychologists, and investigating the effect of sound on sleep. We've been doing a number of events. We started off with a thing called a dream concert. So we had 120 people all in one big room. And throughout the night, we played them little sound samples to see whether the sound was being incorporated into the dreaming content. So the idea is if you play a sound of the seagull, do people end up dreaming about being by the sea? We found, and everyone wrote down their dreams in the morning, we, we found that they did incorporate the information that we played, uh, as a, a certain percentage of it at least. But they, they mainly dreamt about being in a big sleep experiment with 120 other people. <laughs> <laughs> as an artwork, it was kind of interesting, um, but I had sort of limitations. And as a piece of science, it wasn't very rigorous either. We got some funding from the AHRC to do a year's research, and we built a machine called a Dream Director to play a sound sample when someone was dreaming. And the way in which that bit of kit worked was um, it had a heart rate monitor and it could measure your heart rate and it could tell what stage of sleep you're in. Because when you're, when you're dreaming, when you're in rapid eye movement, stage of sleep, um, your heart rate fluctuates dramatically. So we measured that and were then able to play a sound sample. Uh, so that was just for one person. The Clark's Bursary has given us the opportunity to develop the kit so that we can have 20 people experiencing at one time. But rather than thinking of it as a, as a piece of science, we can use it to make an installation artwork. I'm, I'm very interested in sort of perceptual spaces, probably because I'm, I'm colourblind. I've got this sort of natural interest in perception and the way in which we see. But I have really weird sleep anyway, so I'm interested in sleep as a, as a space in which to potentially make artwork and to investigate. I quite like the idea of taking people to new perceptual territories to sort of uh, allow them to explore their own consciousness, I suppose. It's going to be a big room with 20 sleep pods in it, 
and people will come and they'll stay uh, in the gallery overnight. Um, and they wear these special masks that project infrared light on your eyeball. For when you're dreaming, when you've got rapid eye movement, your eyes close, but they start moving around. And the bit of kit we've got can measure that. It will then play a little sound sample specifically to their pod. And the idea is we can kind of alter the narrative of the dream, potentially, that they're having. And how, how do you know at that point what they're dreaming? Or... We don't. We've got no idea. But what we can do is in the morning everyone will write down their right. dreams. And the scientists we're working with can then analyse those dreams and compare them to sort of normative values. There's a certain percentage of dreams that people have involving water. So if we have a whole night of watery sounds, and we know that we're having an effect if half of their dreams involve water. It's a curious kind of experimental artwork, I suppose. Mm. The, the scientists we're working with are interested in it for potential clinical applications for people who suffer from trauma mm -hmm. and they have reoccurring nightmares so the question is you know can we redirect the narrative of their of their nightmare as they're having it and and what does that mean you know is that actually is that actually going to be good for them or is that not maybe people have these reoccurring nightmares for a reason if somebody wanted to give themselves over to this research project how would they get how could they get involved well we'll we'll put a call out um, to the public asking people to come along we're not looking for people with sleep disorders. We're looking for ordinary, healthy people. And we don't want anyone that snores either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there will be, there'll be criteria. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a set of criteria. But actually, I mean, at this stage, we, we can get about 20 people at one time. So I'm hoping we can do a couple of nights. The interesting thing about the project, I think, is it's bringing together that artistic practice with scientific and with clinical, psychological as well. So yeah, it's an interesting it's, it, it's, range. <laughs> It is interesting, and I, I like it for that reason. One of the problems we face is that th there's different rules of engagement. So if you're carrying out a piece of science, there's a specific routine that you have to go through. So when people arrive, you don't really want to tell them what they're going to experience. You don't want to prime them up. Uh, otherwise, you can just affect the data. If I say to you, well, you're going to have a night of, of watery sounds, and you're going to have a great time, people's, people's dreams that they write down in the morning may affect that. Um, I think I'll be running to the toilet. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas artistically, you know, you actually want to prime people up. You want to raise people's expectation. And the way in which you frame an experience is kind of important. So you've got these two uh, methodologies, and it's how you succeed with both. If you're not careful, you can end up with bad art and bad science, yeah. and that would be really bad. And how can people find out about the project? Well, there's, there's two sites. I've got a, um, I've got a website, which is uh, lukejerum.com, and there's sort of a background of the Sky Orchestra and the Dream Concerts and the Dream Director on there, sort of history of the project. Um, but as well as that, we're writing a, a journal on uh, the Watershed website. We're just sort of logging the development of the artwork. Thanks so much. You're welcome. To read Luke's blog and find out more about the Dream Director project, go to dshed dot net slash clark bursary thanks for listening and tune in next month